the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast, your weekly briefing on the stories shaping shipping. I'm Richard Mead, the editor of Lloyd's List. Coming up on this week's podcast, why are governments failing to file accident investigation reports? Almost half of all the casualties that should have resulted in a flag state publishing the results of their investigation have never materialised, and we're curious to know why. But first, containers. When Maersk chief executive Soros Sku declared that his company's latest results were unsatisfactory this week, he no doubt garnered some sympathetic sighs of solidarity from his peers. The container lines have a strategic eye on their digital future, where their value is part of an integrated and efficient supply chain. And that should be recognised in both in terms of rates and utilisation, but they're not there yet. And the immediate concern of high oil prices, uh, rising geopolitical risks and the ratcheting trade tensions are all testing the lines. Sorosku is not the only executive worried about the more immediate future right now. I'm joined by our container kingpins, James Baker and Linton Nightingale. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Now, you guys have spent the week out in Hamburg taking the temperature of the box sector at the Global Liner Shipping Conference. Fair to say the lines are feeling the heat right now? Absolutely. I mean, we've had a lot of the first quarter results starting to emerge, and none of them are looking particularly great. Uh, To be fair, the first quarter is always a slightly weaker quarter. We've got the slowdown after Christmas, the Chinese New Year, um, factory shutdown. So it's it's to be expected. And uh, results are better. They're an improvement on last year. But uh, last year we had a what seemed to like something of a recovery. there was most lines posted a profit uh, for the full year and things were supposed to be looking a bit better um unfortunately we're seeing still seeing red numbers in the first quarter of this year which is uh not looking so great they they are better than the first quarter of last year but the first quarter of last year was 6 months after the uh collapse of hanjin so we were at the right at the bottom of the market so mm. one would expect that things would be getting a bit better than they are by now on the Maersk results specifically, um, their strategic grand visions aside, it's, it's not looking great right now. The, the point is that, I mean, after years of having higher margins than the rest, Maersk are pretty much bumping on the bottom with the rest of them now. Soren Sku, when he was being interviewed after the uh, the results, pointed out that you know there's not much point in being the biggest carrier in the world if that doesn't translate into above average margins. So, you know, what's going wrong for Maersk? Oh, absolutely. I mean... Merck sort of rates itself on its re- return on investor capital, and that's not where it wants it to be at the moment. They are struggling, I think, with um, I, I think a, a lot of it's the integrating uh, the Hamburg sued um, acquisition. Um, mm. There's no major problems there with that with that integration. It's just that there are a lot of VSAs still in place that they have to come out of. Uh, their network is not where they want it to be at the moment. They've got too much capacity on a number of routes. It's all ending up with very high unit costs that that need to be brought down. Mm. Um, And I think there's going to be a real drive at Maersk over the next two or three quarters to to bring those unit costs down. Uh, If I was a Maersk employee, I would not be asking for a raise anytime soon. It won't be happening. Um, But I think those are the main drivers behind uh, why the results are so much so much worse than one might have hoped for. Mm. I mean, Scoo himself, I mean, he's a pretty cool customer. He's been through this before. But, you know, he is somebody who's come out and has stated a grand vision of where Maersk is going. They're looking at, you know, effectively reinventing the company. But he's got 
some more immediate threats. I mean, he's he, he's bet the farm on on a strategic vision, but he's dealing with immediate firefights. I mean, how's he going to uh, deal with this? Well, that's that's to be seen. I think um, it's, you're right. He has he has bet the farm on a on a big project of, of redefining the company completely. But at the moment, the interesting thing I found was that instead of having a very optimistic outlook for the next six to 12 months. And at the start of the year, analyst brokers, everybody was the industry itself was expecting an increase in uh, an improvement in the global economy, which would mm. increase global trade, which would then again, help the, the container carriers. Um, the picture that sort of school was painting was a, a lot darker than that and seemed to be uh, pointing towards a consumer slowdown in the major consumer markets such as uh, the USA and Europe. Um, the backlog was suffering because of partly because of the threats of trade wars and the, you know, the Chinese ban on scrap. Um, and also we've got other things happening that we all know about. Um, it, they've, they've announced that they have to pull out of their Iran service. So there's a lot of sort of dark clouds on the horizon and it's going to be interesting the forecasts and, and everything was, you know, this, the new capacity that was being brought in is all predicated on the fact that the global economy is going to continue growing mm. much, much faster than it has over the, since the, the, the global meltdown. Um, and that consumers would keep buying and that trade growth would, in, would continue to grow. That may not be happening the way that it's being forecast. And that is going to be a, a big threat for all the lines. There is another major slowdown in, mm. in demand. Well, because, excuse me, not alone. I mean, we've seen uh, HMM uh, results come out this week. And of course, you were reporting on Hapag Lloyd. You were out there in Hamburg with uh, Rolf Haben Janssen. I mean, he's, he's described as a challenging market, which I think mm. is a sort of euphemistic way of saying they're not making any money and losing quite yeah. a lot. But he actually seems to be a little bit more optimistic about, uh, you know, mid to long term uh, demand growth. Well, as, as, as long as I've known Rolf Harbin Janssen, he's, he's always said that he's cautiously optimistic. Um, <laughs> there we go again. Yeah. He, he, Phrase of the month. Yes, yeah. I mean, and, and he, he remains so. Um, Habak Lloyd's, their results, yes, it was a loss. It was, it was less of a loss than... Um, than this time last year. They seem to have done their integration with UASC very smoothly and successfully, though they're old hands at doing... Yeah, doing, they learned the hard way. ...doing, doing mergers. Linton, I mean, yeah. in terms of that uh, that dynamic of consolidation, you know, the, the, these are companies that have consolidated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the themes that came out of, of Hamburg was consolidation seems to have... You know, the project seems to have stopped to some extent. Is it fair to say? Um, yeah, well, Lars Jensen from CNTEL was commenting that it's reached its end game, where you have the Super 7 carriers, as they so-called Super 7 carriers, um, who are now kind of jostling for, for position. Um, and the issue is here, is for the two carriers that are essentially on the outside. You have Yang Ming and HMM, and HMM, as you mentioned earlier, um, mm. had some rather unflattering first quarter results. I think they lost over $150 million for second and third quarter. should be a lot better given that the trade should pick up or whatever. But the issue that Yangming and HMM have is that they don't have the tonnage that the other carriers have already and they are obviously looking to expand their fleets considerably. I think um, HMM recently revealed plans that it's looking to double in size over the next five years mm. and if the South Korean ministry has its way possibly even triple in its size to support the South Korean yards. Um, 
But then the question here is, once you have this tonnage, how are you going to fill these ships? It's not a, it's not a given. And there's severe issues for these two here. And yeah. I, mean, the, the, I mean, the issue from their perspective is that they're not quite big enough to be an attractive buyout proposition, but they're not big enough in terms of their own volume to be much more... Uh, you know, growth opportunities. So, I mean, the, effectively, Yangming and HMM are left out in the cold in the consolidation. They're, try, they're trying to compete on the global scale, um, whereas they're, they're, they're successful peers are actually the, the likes of Zim and PIL who are focusing on being niche specialist carriers. Mm. You know, um, Zim always points out the fact that, you know, it might be number whatever in the world in terms of capacity, but mm. on certain trades, it's number two or three. Um, and it's doing relatively well in comparison. The, the challenge for somebody like HMM and Yang Ming, they don't have the scale to be or the capacity to get to that large global player mm. range, um, and yet they're, they're buying ships that are only, you know, if you're buying 20,000 TEU ships, they can only be used on the on the mm. Asia-Europe trade, whereas mm. it can be hard for them to compete. And, of course, the flip side of the consolidation argument is that for the shippers, the consolidation project was supposed to give more reliability, more efficiency, and, and, and address the volatility issues. None of that seems to have filtered through, and quite, quite the opposite. You had a lot of the shippers complaining about the fact that consolidation has not delivered what they were expecting. And, you know, the Maersk results themselves, as you've already pointed out, James, they've got a cost problem, and one of the obvious... Uh, solutions to that, other than not giving pay rises to the staff, is probably going to include closing down some smaller routes, reducing capacity, addressing utilisation, which is probably a euphemism for not running as many services. You know, none of this is good news for the shippers. And they, you know, they, they want to rationalise their services. One of the things I was mentioned was they're spending way too much on feedering at the moment. So looking at more direct port-to-port pairs, which is fine for the carrier, but um, not so great for the shipper who needs to get their, their cargo to Europe one way or another. Okay, let's just change the uh, the tone slightly. Uh, blockchain, um, you know, it's the uh, in terms of proving efficiency, it was the uh, sort of received wisdom from the tech crowd that uh, this is going to be the panacea to all ills. Of course, we've seen Maersk uh, team up with IBM, Cargill this week uh, go out with uh, HSBC. You know, some big blue chip names that are all going out there with some fairly high profile trials about. Uh, increasing the efficiency of trade flow, increasing security, eradicating all manner of corruption along the way. Um, so why, I ask you, was um, Rolf Havn-Jansen telling uh, everybody in Hamburg this week that blockchain is, quote, a money-burning disaster? <laughs> I think he's got a fair point. The, the blockchain uh, in and of itself is uh, exactly what the uh, logistics and, and shipping industry Need it's uh, it, it gives an opportunity to have secure, um, enforceable, verifiable contracts and documentation. Um, there's way too much documentation required to get a container on board a ship. Blockchain's mm. perfect for it. The issue is that, um, as Jeremy Nixon pointed out from Ocean Network Express, he has some 45,000 effective counterparties, um, they all have their own systems, and so on. Um, the issue is getting a blockchain standard across the industry. At the moment, we seem to have a lot of people coming up with their own ideas. And there's huge resistance to this idea that Maersk and IBM are going to set a, a standard or a, or a, a framework for, for blockchain. That's what they're seeking to do. Mm. Um, the trouble with that is if you're a carrier, um, you're then, even if Maersk is you know, very open with it and everything, which it says it will be, 
Mosk is still going to be that controlling mind. If they want to make a change in the way things are done, they will do it. And no carrier is going to want to go to have the standards set by just one other carrier. There's also the issue for the shippers. That means they're tied into you know, working with IBM. Are they going to be able to use their own networks, their own cloud providers, and so on? So I think what we need, one of the things that came up in Hamburg, people were starting to discuss for the first time, was the idea of a, a, a consortium across the, the industry that can, rather than having just, you know, Cargill and, and HSBC or Maersk and IBM or HMM Oracle doing their own things, then we need to get have something that everybody can work on collectively. And the model there is something like Intra, the online booking system, where, yeah. which was launched by the carriers to have a joint um, uh, site where all online bookings could be channeled through rather than and, and sort of simplifying the process. But mm. it was owned by all rather than just one one but is, I mean, isn't the counter-argument to this that, uh, you know, blockchain as a single entity is a bit of a misnomer and probably misunderstood by people in the industry who aren't tech-savvy enough to understand that you know, we're not talking about a single technology. We're talking about multiple different pieces of technology, multiple blockchains, hmm. uh, and we are in an, area, in an era of testing. You know, there are trials. That's These are right. many trials, and, yeah. and I think this idea that we were going to have a, a big bang um, is, you know, Frankly, unwarranted. I, you know, I think we are going to see an evolution of some of this technology. Oh, absolutely. But the, I mean, the basics of blockchain and a, a digital distributed ledger is, I mean, that's that's accepted. Yeah. The issue is the implementation of it. How are you going to make it work for something that you know a small shipper or BCO or freight forwarder in Latin America mm. can get in touch with, you know, a Maersk or a Pepe Lloyd or whomever, um, and do their transactions through that but be able to work with multiple lines and um and multiple shippers and have a, a common common ground framework that they can they can be utilizing now yeah it, it, it is a matter of sort of suck it and see at the moment i think you know the, the shipping industry is very slow on digital uptake the fact that we're still talking about digitalization in 2018 is mm. what other industry is 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 discussing that um it, it's you know we've had computers for quite a long time um so yeah, I, I, I mean the, the you know the, the the uptake of this is 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 frankly more to do with behavioural economics than it is the technology which is which is existing, yeah. and it's a question of bringing these people together. Themes I should add that uh, will be picked up in much more depth uh, come Posidonia when we will be holding the Lloyd's List business briefing on Sunday, June the third. Anybody who's not signed up to it that will be out in Athens for this week should go to Lloyd'sList.com and register your place immediately. Um, gentlemen, thank you very much. I'm sure we'll pick up some of these themes in later podcasts, but thank yeah. you for today. Cheers. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. When the tanker Sanchi collided with the bulk carrier CF Crystal in January, 32 crew lost their lives in the explosion and fire that followed. China has this week published the accident investigation report, and while there are still remaining disagreements over the cause of the casualty, the fact that the publication exists and has been produced in record time is itself an important development. I'm joined by our senior reporter, Nida Baksh, who has been looking into the industry's frankly appalling record on making public the results of accident investigations. Nida, hello. Hi. So let's start with the century report itself. What did it tell us? Well, the 191-page uh, report was very detailed. China was the lead investigating state. It worked in cooperation with Iran, Hong Kong, and Panama to produce the report in, in record time, actually. It highlighted um, 
that both vessels were responsible for the incident um, because they didn't maintain a proper lookout um, by sight and hearing and other methods. And they recommended about nine things that need to be addressed uh, by IMO and member states. Mm. So, so far, so normal in the sense that a full accident investigation is expected to produce these recommendations, get to the bottom of what has happened. You know, the accident investigation report itself is pretty uncontroversial. The interesting thing here is it's only taken four months to produce. Realistically, that's not the standard, is it? Well, that's right. I mean, four months is uh, amazing for um, uh, the shipping industry. If you look at um, data from, from European flag states, for example, the average is about 12 months. Um, in half the cases that I have looked at over the past um, several weeks, uh, no, well, half reports um, have not actually don't appear on the IMO's um, GISIS website, which mm. is a public database um, recording all these uh, events. So just to be clear, in terms of the responsibilities of the government flag states, the, the general rule, if I'm not wrong, is that in the case of a serious casualty, and we're defining serious by one that has loss of life or um, a sinking, um, a flag state is required by the IMO's casualty code to produce a investigation into the causes and make some recommendations in terms of what went That's, wrong, yes? That is correct, and okay. it's actually for very serious incidents. Right. And okay. very serious right. incidents are classified as any loss of life, total loss of vessel, and mm. or serious pollution or damage to the environment. And yet, you're saying, after several weeks of trawling through the IMO's own public data, only half of the casualties that should have spawned an investigation have actually been published. You've got that's, any idea why that is the case? Well, that's correct. I mean, I looked at data um, spanning the last four years, mm -hmm. and um, the reason, it's quite a complex uh, issue. Um, you know, different incidents are caused by different things. Mm. Um, some may be very simple, straightforward cases, which can take three months to complete. And others are, are much more complex in perhaps remote areas, in high seas, uh, in the South Atlantic Sea, for example, uh, which take a, a lot longer to, to compile. Flag states have to um, do thorough investigations um, to get to the, to the bottom of um, incidents. They have to talk to PNI clubs, they have to get witnesses, if they are any, uh, and talk to um, engineers, naval architects, etc., just to get a full view of what may have caused that particular incident. So mm. it does take a long time uh, to trawl through. And if you look at the amount of accidents um, that have taken place in the last four years or five years, I mean, we're talking about 600 to 800. Mm. Yes, and yet I go back to the example of the Sanchi, which can be produced in four months, and I completely accept that you know some are more complicated than others, but if half of all investigations don't ever get published, that is a slightly more fundamental issue. I mean, the issue is, of course, that the IMO itself has no ability to enforce governments to produce their own flag state investigations. That's right, and that's where the tricky um, thing comes in. The IMO, the IMO has said that they have no power to... Um, impose penalties on non-compliance. Hmm. Um, they are very limited in what they can do. What what the IMO rules for casualty investigations uh, stipulates is that um, member states must or are required to produce a report following an accident in this 
following their accident investigation. Mm. Um, but they have no method of, of really enforcing it. Well, of course, and the IMO realistically is nothing more than the collective will of its member state governments, and to that extent it can't enforce them to do anything. But it strikes me that there has been very little uh, pressure on these governments to start doing this. But um, I mean, it's interesting, we're talking about this this week, uh, the MSC, the Maritime Safety Committee, meets in London, um, where I believe Intercargo is actually picking up the baton on this issue precisely. Yes, they have. They have been highlighting in their in their analysis of, of, of casualties involving bulk carriers. What they have found is that in um, 53 cases or incidents um, between 2008 and 2017, um, 29 reports were missing mm. from what they were looking at, which was also the IMO database. Um, that is uh, quite serious because the whole point of these reports is that lessons can then be learned, mm. potential changes made, in order to make seafarers' lives safe mm. going forward. What they plan to do is have zero lives lost and zero loss of ships in future. Well, of course, and they are, by publishing this report and making it public, at the IMO's MSC, they're seeking to add pressure on the governments to actually do this, um, an action which I think we are going to be supporting by your investigation, which is due to be coming out next week, I expect. Well, hopefully. There is still a lot of um, work to be done on it. But um, yes, Intercargo is one of the associations that is um, looking at this in more detail than, than other associations. Mm. Um, you know, They have said there's just no room for complacency um, in those incidents that they looked at, 204 seafarers lost their lives. If these reports become available, trends may be spotted, ideas um, discussed for, for ways to improve the situation for seafarers, and perhaps we will see a situation one day when there are no lives lost. A very important piece of journalism. Nita, thank you very much. For those of you planning your Posidonia agendas, make sure you are signed up to the Lloyd's List business briefing on June the 3rd. It starts at 2 o'clock and you can register via lloydslist.com. Anybody looking at sanctions risk right now, and I suspect many of you are, would do well to pay a visit to lloydslistintelligence.com. Uh, in terms of finding your customers' beneficial ownership strategies, you can do no better than testing their sanctions investigations. Until next week, I wish you all a prosperous week. Thank you.